The saying was attributed to the novelist Jack London that the most beautiful stories always start with wreckage. And as we look this morning to Genesis 27, as we continue on in the book of Genesis, we will find that there is no shortage of wreckage, no shortage of sinful conduct on the part of all four family members involved here. But through it all, the Lord was working out his plans to save a people for himself, which is truly the most beautiful story in all of the world. And so, if you would, please turn with me to your Bibles to, to Genesis chapter 27 as we consider the book of Genesis once again. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go in, out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse, not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the goats, uh, the young goats, on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please, sit, and eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it? that you have it so quickly, my son. And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not 
recognized him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate. He also brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now it came about, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac his father said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me. Even me also, O oh my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives. I have given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you not have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above by your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve but it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck so Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him and Esau said to himself the days of mourning for my father are near then I will kill my brother Jacob now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. 
Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heath. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heath like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, if you're a student of history at all, you may know that there are some stories in which no one comes away looking good, in which no character walks away feeling uh, with the uh, appearance of being particularly upright or particularly moral. Genesis 27 is a history of that kind. Here we have a patriarch who intended to give a blessing to one of his sons in contradiction of the expressed oracle of God as the promise was given to Rebekah back in chapter 25 that the older will serve the younger. Surely Isaac knew that by this point in life. Here we have a wife and a mother who schemes a deceitful scheme and commands her son to go along with the scheme. Here we have a younger son who deceives and blatantly lies to his father in order to obtain blessing. Here we have an older son who weeps over a lost blessing even after he had already despised his birthright and sold it for a mess of stew to gratify his hunger as at the end of Genesis 25. And now, once the blessing has been taken by Jacob in this manner, now he holds a grudge and purposes to murder his brother. This is a mess, any way you look at it. But let's not miss the fact that though this is a mess, nevertheless, it was even by the means of the sinful actions of mankind that the plans and purposes of God were being advanced. And so let's, let's look at the text and let's observe the various pieces of the mess. And then, once we've done that, we'll observe the warning which are presented to us here by the conduct of this family. And we will also observe in this the unfathomable and inscrutable ways in which God brings his purposes to pass in the world. And so verses 1 through 4 set the scene for us. Isaac's old, he, his eyes are dim. Now, we can't be exactly sure how old Isaac or his sons were at the time of the event of this chapter, judging from uh, the previous chapter, verse 34 of chapter 26, we can at least surmise that Jacob and Esau were at least 40, and therefore Isaac is by now at least 100. But if we take into account Jacob's age when he went to Egypt as 130, as given by Genesis 47, verse 9, and then work backwards, taking into account some of the, the different chronological data that is given to us, it seems much more likely that Jacob and Esau are probably in their 70s when these events took place. We might think of this as being like two teenagers or two boys in their 20s. This is, this is not that. Most likely, Jacob and Esau are probably in their 70s. And again, I think it's safe to assume that Isaac knew that word that had come to Rebekah from the Lord concerning those boys in Genesis 25-23 that the older would serve the younger. He probably knew about the selling of the birthright also at the end of Genesis chapter 25. But yet, Isaac still persists in his intention to give the Abrahamic blessing to his favorite son Esau instead of to Jacob, the one whom the Lord has chosen. John Calvin expressed the fault of Isaac here by saying his obstinate attachment to his son 
was a kind of blindness which proved a greater obstacle to him than the external dimness of his eyes. And so Isaac summons Esau so that he can command Esau to go hunting, procure this game, and prepare the savory food that he liked to eat. Now, I don't think it's entirely clear what the purpose of the meal was, whether there was some ceremonial significance that was to accompany the conveying of the blessing and this uh, ceremonial significance would be carried out in the meal or whether it was to be some kind of proof of Esau's loyalty and obedience to his father or whether it was simply a matter of personal taste that Isaac just wanted some tasty and savory food to accompany the conveyance of the blessing. Whatever the reason might have been, Isaac commands Esau, Esau obeys. Meanwhile, someone was listening. Her name was Rebekah. And while Isaac had designs for his favorite son, Esau, Rebekah also had designs for her favorite son, Jacob. She sees that Isaac is getting ready to bestow the Abrahamic blessing and promises on Esau, but she knows that God has told her that the blessing will be Jacob's. She knew, even before the twins were born. And no doubt, she believed that divine word. She wanted to see it fulfilled. And so, in a way, she she walked in the footsteps of, of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah believed God's promise that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, but yet they took illegitimate steps to bring that about through Hagar, right? When Sarah couldn't conceive, they gave Hagar into Abraham's arms as a second wife. And now, in an attempt to secure the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob, to whom it had already been promised by God, Rebekah proceeds by turning to a scheme full of deception and full of lies. She lays out the plan to Jacob there in verses 8 through 10, and she commands him to be involved in it. He's to grab these two young goats and bring them to her so that she could prepare the food for Isaac the way that he liked it. And Jacob, for his part, would take it to his father and receive the blessing. But notice Jacob's misgivings about this plan that are indicated there in verses 11 and 12. Jacob is worried that this plan might not go off without a hitch. And we should notice that in his concern, as it is expressed, it is simply a concern about getting caught, right? This is not him raising a moral objection. This is wrong. This is dishonest. I shouldn't do it. This is simply a question of what if dad feels my skin, feels that I'm not a hairy man like Esau. If so, he's going to be on to us. This will not end well for me. He might curse me instead of blessing me if he finds this out. But Rebecca is very confident that everything's going to work out fine. And she knew Again, the word of God that the older would serve the younger. She's confident enough that there would be no curse, so much so that she is willing to take it to herself, right? She says, if there is any curse, let your curse fall on me. This is going to go off fine, she says. She gives the orders. She says, only obey my voice. Go get them for me. And so mother and son continue on in the collaboration. Jacob gets the goats. Rebecca makes the food. She gives Jacob the choice garments of Esau so that uh, the smell of Esau will be present with Jacob. They fix the problem of him being a smooth man by the goat skins on his hands and on his neck. And then with food in hand, he goes to his father. And as he goes to his father, the lies just, just keep on coming. 
When asked his identity, first he says, I am Esau, your firstborn, I have done as you told me. When asked about the speed by which the hunt had proceeded and the preparation of the food, Jacob even invokes the name of the Lord in his lie. He says, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. When Isaac has his doubts about the speed of things and the sound of the voice speaking to him, he asks for the son to come near so that he could feel him. And then by the use of the goats and the goat skins, Isaac is deceived and agrees that those are the hands of Esau. And then comes yet another lie, verse 24. Are you really my son Esau? Jacob says, I am. And then the description continues in the chapter with the sense of smell. Jacob comes near to give him the food. He's got Esau's garments on him. Isaac smells what he perceives to be the smell of Esau and then proceeds right there to give the blessing to Jacob. And notice there a few things in that the blessing that's contained there in verses 27 through 29, or more particularly verses 28 and 29. And so you have there uh, essentially three, three aspects. There's a, a blessing in regard to, uh, to agriculture and, and earthly prosperity. Verse 28, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. So there's, there's first this, uh, this earthly prosperity, earthly agricultural blessing. Then there is a blessing with regard to earthly superiority over other nations and over the rest of the family. Verse 29, may the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And then finally, there's that note of curse and blessing at the end of chapter 29. Cursed be those who curse you, blessed be those who bless you. And of course, that harkens back right in line with the promise that God gave to Abraham, Genesis 12:3, that those who cursed Abraham would be cursed, those who blessed him would be blessed. And thus, through the deceitful scheme of his mother and by way of his own deception and lies, Jacob thus received the blessing of Isaac, which he had deeply desired, right? He had connived so as to get his brother to sell him the birthright, and now he collaborates with his mother to get the blessing. And he and his mother are no doubt pleased at how this performance had gone off and how they had executed their designs. Two members of the family are happy about this. There's going to be two members of the family who are extremely unhappy with this. And indeed, verses 30 through 40 fill us in on what happened once the ruse was discovered. The real Esau shows up with real wild game for his father, and they understand what happened. They understand that it was Jacob that had come in and taken the blessing by means of deceit. When Isaac learned the truth, he trembles violently, genuinely angry that he was deceived, but notice, and this is significant, there was no going back on what had been done. That was what Esau wanted, was for things to, to unravel and for the blessing to go back to him. But Isaac says at the end of verse 33, yes, and he shall be blessed. The blessing had been bestowed on Jacob, and that blessing was irreversible. Isaac knew that what he had said concerning Jacob when he blessed him was indeed true, though it had not been his intention at the time that he spoke those words to Jacob. 
Isaac knew now that though he had been mistaken about the identity of the son that he had blessed, nevertheless, he had pronounced the correct blessing upon the correct son. Though it's not what he intended, yet it was God's will that Jacob would be blessed. And thus Isaac, the end of verse 33, confirms the blessing when he said, and he shall be blessed. He now understood that though his intention was to bless Esau, it was the Lord's intention to bless Jacob, and that blessing would stand, because the Lord's purposes would stand. And notice, notice Esau's response to, to all of this as he continued to seek blessing for himself. We read in verse 34 there that he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But the deed was done. Jacob had already been blessed. As Isaac related there in verse 37, he had made Jacob to be Esau's masters. Jacob's relatives were given to him as his servants. He had been sustained by this blessing of grain and new wine. And Esau replies in verse 38 by begging with tears even for a single blessing. And it is to this incident that the writer of the book of Hebrews refers in Hebrews 12, 17, when he says that when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And when we compare those words in Hebrews 12, 17 with what the, uh, the history here of, of Genesis 27, it seems that what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at is not that Esau was unable to repent of his sins, but rather that though he begged with tears, he could not persuade Isaac to repent of the fact that he had given the blessing to Jacob. With all of his wails and begging and pleading and tears, Esau could not induce Isaac to change his mind. Could not induce him to repent of having pronounced the blessing on Jacob. And this is because Isaac was convinced that what he, has done, what he had done was actually right, even though he had been tricked into doing it. Though he personally favored Esau over Jacob, he would not rescind the blessing that he had pronounced. Now, we do need to, to notice, though, that translations uh, in the English vary in the way that they render Isaac's words to Esau in verse 39 when he does speak to him. Um, and the, the, the variations uh, are over the question of whether a partial blessing is given to Esau or whether no blessing at all is given to Esau. Our modern English translations like the, the ESV, the uh, New American Standard, the NIV, and so forth usually translate the verse in such a way as to indicate that Esau's dwelling would be away from the fatness of the earth and away from the dew of heaven, as if there is absolutely no or at least very little earthly blessings that would come to Esau. Now, on the other hand, uh, an older translation like the King James Version and ancient translations like the Greek Septuagint or the Latin Vulgate usually went a a, a different route, a more literal route in their translations. And so just for example, the King James uh, translated Isaac's words in verse 39 as, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven above. Now, on that rendering, uh, it's not that Esau is absolutely cut off from all fruitfulness and all earthly blessings, but nevertheless, it still does not attain to the 
fullness of blessing and fruitfulness that was given to, to Jacob back in verse 28. Now, given those, those two options between the way our more modern translations go and the way the, the older translations went, I would probably lean toward the second of the two. But either way, either way you want to slice it, it is clear enough that Isaac's words to Esau in verses 39 and 40 are very different than his words to Jacob in verses 28 and 29. It's very clear that Jacob is blessed, Esau not so much. Esau's people would live by the sword. And if you think back to to Ishmael earlier in the book of Genesis, what Isaac says here of, of Esau is very similar to the way that the angel of the Lord spoke concerning Ishmael uh, when the angel of the Lord spoke to Hagar in Genesis 16:12, He said that uh, everyone's hand would be against him, that his hand would be against everyone. And here we're told concerning Esau's people that they would live by their sword. And it's very clear also that Esau's people would serve Jacob's people. And indeed, that prophecy came to pass. And so we're told in 1 Chronicles 18, 12, and 13 of a great slaughter of the Edomites. Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And that, in the, uh, that occurred in the days of King David and that David put garrisons in Edom. And the Edomites became servants to David. Isaac's prophecy goes on and he says uh, that it will come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. And indeed, we find in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, that Edom revolted against Judah in the days of King Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat. They rebelled and they made a king over themselves. And so, indeed, Esau's descendants did serve Jacob. They did become restless and throw off the neck of the descendants of Judah. And so, Esau here seeks after the Abrahamic blessing... But he could not get it, and so he goes on to become disgruntled, and therefore we see in verse 41 that he bore this grudge against his brother, planned to murder him after his father's death. And when Rebekah catches wind of the plan, she schemes yet again, devising a way to get Jacob out of harm's way without fully revealing the motivation of her heart to Isaac, instead of straight up telling Isaac, hey, Esau is planning to murder Jacob, we need to get Jacob out of here, she tries to engineer another plan. And so she grounds this plan on sending Jacob away on uh, the fact that she really hates the fact that Esau has married these Hittite women who were from among the Canaanites. Now, it's a worthy goal to get Jacob out of there to, uh, to take a wife from, uh, from the family back in the east. But... Uh, nevertheless, she deceives her husband in terms of her motivation about getting Jacob out of there. She doesn't lay bare the full motivation of her heart in that. Now, as I said, there are some stories in which no one, no one comes away looking good, particularly upright, particularly moral. Genesis 27 is a history of that sort. We have the, the blindness of Isaac as he's seeking uh, to bless his firstborn son, even though he surely knew that it was God's intention to bless Jacob. We see Rebekah's scheming deceitfulness. We see uh, Jacob going along, lying to his father repeatedly, claiming 
the name of the Lord, even as he tells a lie. We see Esau's anger. We see his grudge. We see his intent to murder. Truly, what a wonderful family. Truly, what great people. More truly, what a mess. So, what are we to understand from the messed up situation here? What can we learn and glean from it? We can certainly learn many things, but I'll I'll mention a few. First, we need to notice the sinfulness of failing to submit ourselves to and conduct ourselves in accordance with the revealed will of God. We need to notice the sinfulness of failing to submit ourselves to and conduct ourselves in accordance with the revealed will of God. This was the sin of Isaac. And again, my sense is that Isaac knew that the blessing was to come to Jacob, and yet he stubbornly and steadfastly wanted to give the blessing to his favorite son. I think one commentator hit pretty close to the mark when he said, He that knows the duplicity and the treachery of the human heart will not find it difficult to understand how a man will circumvent a word of God, no matter how clear it be, if his heart is really set on what is at variance with that word. In other words, if you know the human heart and the human condition, we get it. How someone can stubbornly, steadfastly set their heart and will against what God has clearly revealed and seek to, if possible, circumvent it if their heart is set on the opposite of what the Lord has said. And isn't that sometimes the sad state of our hearts? Now, sometimes a problem can be a lack of knowledge. Truly, the Lord said to the prophet Hosea, Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, sometimes lack of knowledge can be a problem. Many times, lack of knowledge is not the problem at all. How many times is our problem not a lack of knowledge, but rather a lack of will, a lack of desire to do what is right? How often is it that we know full well what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, but we set our hearts and wills at variance with his revealed will and attempt to proceed in doing that which we know? which we know is not right. In those moments, in those actions, in those activities, we are effectively saying, no, Lord, not your will, but mine be done. Surely it must have been so with King David of old. He was no novice in the things of the Lord after he had become king and reigned for a matter of some years. He was, he was 30 years old when he had become king. He reigned over simply the tribe of Judah for, in Hebron for seven and a half years before coming to Jerusalem. He's a man after God's own heart. But, yet, he did what he did. Surely he knew. Surely of all men living in Israel. He knew that it was sinful to sleep with another man's wife. Surely he knew that it was sinful to set up one of his own soldiers to take a hit from enemy soldiers. David himself had been the... Uh, on the receiving end of that kind of treatment from King Saul back in his younger days. Surely David knew better, but he didn't do better. Now as we sit back and take an analytical look at this, we can see the suicidal blindness and folly of David in this. Obviously we know the story. To us it is history, but 
David was living this in real time, right? He saw the woman bathing and he wanted her. And to him, in the moment, that took precedence over the word of God and the law of God, which he knew. And apparently he wasn't concerned with the consequences. Again, he that knows the duplicity and treachery of the human heart will not find it difficult to understand how a man can circumvent a word of God, no matter how clear it be, if his heart is really set on what is at variance to that word. You see a similar phenomenon taking place in Daniel chapter 5 in regard to King Belshazzar of Babylon. Daniel had recounted to Belshazzar the history of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar's pride in Daniel chapter 4 in which God humbled him and drove him away from mankind, making his heart like the heart of a beast such that he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he gives it to whomever he wishes. And then Daniel said to King Belshazzar, he says, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. In other words, Belshazzar knew how God had dealt with Nebuchadnezzar in his pride, but that didn't stop Belshazzar from doing the exact same thing that Nebuchadnezzar had done. Now, what about you? What about me? Is there anything in your heart, anything in your life, in which you are effectively saying, I know what the Word of God says about this, but I want to do it anyways. I know that it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, but I don't care. At least, I don't care enough to repent. I think that I know better than what God has said. I want to enjoy the sin. Maybe one day I'll repent later. We'll see. This is wickedness. This is the road to judgment and destruction if we hold on to this attitude and do not repent of it. We have to submit ourselves to the word of God and conduct ourselves in accordance with it. The second thing that that we see here is the the sinfulness of seeking to bring about God's purposes by illegitimate means. This is is Rebecca's sin. Rebecca clearly knew that it was God's purpose for Jacob to receive the blessing. Jacob knew this himself, I do not doubt, and they both desire for Jacob to get the blessing, though they have some skewed motivations in all of this. That's not bad that Jacob knew he was to receive the blessing because God had revealed it. And it was not inherently bad for Jacob to desire the blessing, for how could it be wrong for him to desire what God had revealed would be his? But what was wrong was the way in which they went about seeking to bring about what God had ordained and revealed. Now, again, we've, we've seen this before in regard to, uh, to Abraham and, and Hagar, this idea that the, the ends justify the means. And Rebecca, again, is doing the same sort of thing here. She knew that Jacob was to inherit the blessing. She knew that God had said it would be so. And yet, she almost sees the opportunity slipping through her fingers. Right? She, she sees Esau being sent out on this hunt so that he can return, make the food, and receive the blessing. And she thinks, it's, it's now or never. We've got to get this in the bag, or this one's getting away. It was sinful. It caused a lot of family trouble. We need to learn from this that it is possible to sin greatly, even when the goal which we are pursuing is right and good. 
It was right that Rebekah desired for Jacob to receive the blessing. But even though she may well have thought that the blessing was about to be lost and given to Esau, even though she may have thought that unless she did something quick, the promise of God would be brought to nothing, even though those kind of things may have been racing through her mind, none of that justifies her conduct. Our calling as believers is to submit ourselves to the Lord and to be obedient to him in all things, come what may. We must never assume that just because a goal may be good or just because an end goal may be in accordance with the will of God, that that necessarily means that all of the ways we may maneuver to bring about that good end are also good and acceptable. Sometimes people do wicked things in order to achieve a good goal. And we must not do that because the ends do not justify the means. We must not only pursue good goals, but we must pursue them in a godly way every step along the way. Now, surely more could be said here, but we pass on to notice a third thing. And that is the sinfulness of bearing a grudge. Jacob had lied, had deceived his father, received the blessing. Esau resented this, understandably so. And according to verse 41, he bears a grudge against Jacob. Now, Jacob had done wrong, no doubt about it. But that didn't justify the bitterness, didn't justify the grudge. And where did the grudge lead in this case? Well, it led to murderous intentions, subsequently a family rift. And by the grace of God, grudges born against others do not always lead to murderous intentions and so forth. But they can, and they sometimes do. Bearing a grudge against someone, even when that someone has done you great harm, is only setting yourself up for going into to darker places. Places of hatred, revenge, maybe worse. The Christian way is to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us and to bear no ill will or malice toward those who have offended us. And we need to note, though, that in doing this, we need to be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. And so just to, to give an example, if you were to come over to my house for dinner and then were to decide for some reason or other that you wanted to throw a punch at me, I am obligated to forgive you, to let it go, to bear you no ill will or malice. But at the same time, you understand you may not be on my guest list anytime in the near future. We might have to, might have to let things settle down a little bit. We have to wisely navigate such circumstances. I can bear no grudge against you, but you might not be coming over anytime soon. We'll see. But again, let me be clear. The, again, the bearing of grudges has no place in the life of a Christian. Now, if you've been with us in uh, adult Sunday school the past few months, we've, we've seen this kind of behavior in the life of David as he is innocent as a dove, yet shrewd as a serpent uh, as he's on the run from Saul after David had spared Saul's life on those two occasions, 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26. Saul, on both occasions, confesses his sinfulness uh, to David. And David, of course, for his part, was not going to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. But, at the same time, it's always very clear that David didn't come back to the king's court and hang out with Saul. He stayed out there in the wilderness in the strongholds. He knew uh, that he had to leave Saul's case to God and let God be judged, but at the same time, he acted wisely for his own well-being. And so grudges lead to trouble. We can't bear them. We have to forgive, but at the same time, we have to, in forgiving, conduct ourselves wisely. 
And finally here, we need to see that God uses sinful people and even the sinful actions of sinful people to bring about his purposes here on earth. This blessing was to be Jacob. The older was to serve the younger, as the Lord had said to Rebekah. But the blessing came to the younger, albeit through deceitful and ungodly means. But nevertheless, as Jacob said, and he will be blessed. The blessing would stick. And indeed, don't we see this kind of thing in Scripture, where bad actors are doing bad things, but the evil that they are doing is explicitly said to be of the Lord. In other words, they were fulfilling the Lord's purposes even though they were choosing in their own hearts to do evil. And just, just think, think through some examples. So, for instance, later on in the book of Genesis, we've got Joseph and his brothers. They clearly did a wicked thing, right? They sold him into slavery because they hated him. But Joseph was able to see at the end of things that though it was meant for evil by them, God had meant it for good. Think of Samson when he desired to marry the Philistine woman of Timnah. In doing that, he was desiring something he should not desire. He was attempting something he should not have attempted. But we're told in Judges 14.4 that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Or just consider Rehoboam, 1 Kings 12, when he snubbed the advice of the wise counselors who advised him to, to lighten up a little bit on the nation so that they would serve him. And instead he chose to follow the counsel of the young men who had grown up with him to crack the whip even harder on the nation of Israel. And yet we read 1 Kings twelve fifteen. So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And of course, this is in reference to uh, that word that had come about the ten tribes being split away from the family of David and David's descendants. And uh, Rehoboam was being foolish and sinful in the actions that he took. And he was actively doing something that made him lose the bulk of his kingdom but yet it was said to be of the Lord. This was the Lord's way of bringing about the fulfillment of prophecy. And even so it was here in Genesis 27. The actions all along the way were sinful, but the turn of events was from the Lord, and it was by these means that the blessing was bestowed on the rightful recipient. Now, obviously, sinners bear responsibility for their wicked intentions, wicked actions, and if we don't repent and turn to Christ, we will be judged for them. But nevertheless... Those intentions and actions serve the Lord's purposes. I don't know if anyone else here still listens to CDs in their car, um, but my family still does. And uh, one of the CDs that we listen to with our children contains the line that is perhaps a little shocking at first, but it sums up this truth that we've been seeing here quite nicely. And the line of one of the songs says, If we should stand, or even if we fall, God is working out his purpose in it all. That's true. That's what was going on here in Genesis 27. Lots of falling, but the Lord's purpose was prevailing. That's why we sang Psalm 76 this morning, because Asaph says in Psalm 76.10, the wrath of man shall praise you. And the wrath of man that he's talking about there is, is sinful wrath, but yet the Lord turns that to his praise and to his glory. And of course, this truth 
is actually in play in the great act of our redemption as our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. Our brother Stan read for us that passage from Acts chapter 2 this morning about how wicked men nailed our Lord Jesus to the cross, but yet this was God's intended purpose, that Christ die. And we see the same thing expressed uh, perhaps a little differently, Acts 4, 27 and 28, as the apostles are pouring out their hearts in prayer. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, they were all doing wickedly in doing what they did to Jesus. But, nevertheless, these things were for the fulfillment of God's great plan. God was at work in those events, giving his only begotten Son for us, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's only through Christ that we find forgiveness and the new life that we need because in one way or the other all of us have lived lives that somehow resemble Isaac here stubbornly setting his heart against what the Lord had revealed all of us live lives resembling Rebecca scheming dishonest resembling Jacob's lies resembling Esau's grudges we've got these kind of sins and more besides and we need forgiveness and we need grace to cleanse to cover we need new life from the death of sins. And all of this is available freely in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who turn to him in faith and in repentance. And if you have more questions about what that means to, to trust in Jesus, to turn from sin, you can talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about this. And in addition to the fact that God's purpose was going forward here, we also see that the base and sinful actions of God's people don't have the final word for them. Now, in the case of Esau, this is different. Esau was a godless man. He was defined by his sin. He never repented. But Isaac and Jacob were men of faith and are counted among the godly. Why else would the Lord identify himself as the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, unless he were indeed their God, in covenant relationship with them, forgiving their sins, justifying them through faith. Bad as their sins were, the grace of God toward them was greater. Unworthy of God though they were, the Lord called them by his grace, saved them, made them new, forgave their sins, taught them, and sanctified them. For them... The grace of God, not their sins, has the last word. And that should give hope to sinners like you and me who turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your purposes and your plans. We praise you for the goodness of your intentions towards us in Christ, for his coming, for his life and death and resurrection for us. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would see the folly of sin, that we would be quick to turn from it, that we'd be quick to submit ourselves to your revealed will, and that we would walk with you. And we praise you for your sovereignty, your control, your good purposes in bringing them to pass. 
Lord, we ask your blessing now as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. We pray that we would come with hearts of joy, rejoicing in Christ and what he has done for us by giving his body and his blood for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.